Good afternoon, Disciples Church. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters in Christ. My name is Phil Comstock, and it's my pleasure to read scriptural reading today. Reading from James 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Phil. Hello again. Did you miss me? <laughs> Thank you so much uh, again for joining us in worship today. Um, while it was unexpected for me, it is my privilege to once again open God's word with and for you. We are stepping out of Mark uh, for an, the next couple weeks. Jonathan had partially prepared the message for this week, and so uh, we're going to let him preach that. And um, today we're going to be in James, as, as Phil had read. So as we've already talked about today, sometimes, as we know, life surprises you. The Mosiers are certainly living in the truth of that this week. Certainly, some of you are there as well. And as I gave this idea further thought, it occurred to me that we're coming up on whatever the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the COVID-19 lockdowns were. It varies from state to state and person to person, I suppose. But it was right around this time a year ago that things started getting real as far as what we've been living in for the past year. Did anybody happen to have anything planned last year that then didn't end up happening? Let's see a raise of hands. If, okay, so that's everybody. And those who don't have your hands raised are lying, so that's great. Cancellations, postponements, and alternate ideas were all the rage in 2020. And we, you and I, and the whole of the world, were not happy about it. All because an annoying virus that we weren't familiar with had decided to sweep across the planet without concern for national boundaries or creed or age or gender. And we found ourselves, as this generation, surprised. Outside of 2020, perhaps one of the best examples of how life has personally surprised me began in 1985. I was a freshman in high school. Once again, go ahead and do the math. And fairly early on, I met a fellow long hair artist type with the name Lance Wittenberg. We were best friends throughout high school. We hung out together, we went to concerts together, and we flipped burgers at Hardy's together. It's not there anymore, it's where Walgreens was in Heartland if you want to go and take a tour. On March 10th of our senior year, so coming up this week, is it Wednesday maybe? My guidance counselor, who I had never met, knocked on the door of my algebra classroom and took me down to his office. And he let me know that Lance had been killed in a car accident that morning. 
I had just seen him the night before at work, and I was trembling and tingling and all those things that I think that you feel when you experience something like that. Because in an instant, my life and countless other lives had changed forever. Parents had lost a son, a sibling lost a brother, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins lost a family member, and friends who expected to be picked up that morning now watched as his lifeless body was removed from his car just minutes from where they lived. And on and on the hurt went. Fast forward eight years, I had graduated from college and I got a new job and I was sat down next to a girl named Sheila. I was handed an employee sheet with every other employee's name on it and I noticed that Sheila's last name was Wittenberg. A somewhat unusual name with an even more unusual spelling. It's B-U-R-G rather than B-E-R-G, which is the capital of Germany. But hers was B-U-R-G and Lance's was B-U-R-G. And so I asked Sheila if she knew Lance and as it turns out, she was his cousin. And though we had crossed paths at many of the same functions, including his funeral, it was in that place and at that time that we first met. So we became friends, and in time we started dating. We fell in love, and we found life-changing faith in Christ together. And this year we will celebrate 22 years of marriage as parents to a 14-year-old son. So what? Well, the so what is this. In both the good and the bad, God in his mercy reminds us that we are not in control, but that he is. Do you know how much God must have delighted in watching me come to the understanding of who I married and how often he caused our paths to go back and forth and how it's connected to maybe the closest friend that I had in high school. Friends, life surprises us when it doesn't work out according to our will, according to our plans and according to our timing. But life always goes according to God's will. Do you know that? Friends, we worship a God who came as a humble, dependent baby, born in a manger to lowly parents from a nowhere town. Not in a castle to a king and a queen, and his mother was a virgin. He spent the majority of his life unknown, only to be rejected by those who claimed to be waiting for him. He was ultimately sentenced to death, though he had done no wrong. And he took upon himself the punishment for his enemies, rising again three days later to offer eternal life and his indwelling spirit to those who would believe in him. Is there a greater example 
of the unplanned and the unexpected in the eyes of man than of God's salvation story through his son in Christ. Who plans for that? Who expects it to go that way? You and I have all known devastation and we have all known blessing to greater and smaller degrees. Most of it unexpected. Most of it unplanned. Think about the greatest things in your life. Think about the most devastating things in your life. How much of that did you plan for? And there is not a person in the sound of my voice whose life cannot be turned completely upside down with a phone call or a text. There are people in this room who know it's true. But do you and I live in light of that reality? Humbly trusting in the sovereign mercy of God. So as we begin today's passage in verses 13 through 14, we find ourselves on the back end of an appeal that James had made in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4. He was writing to the church in Jerusalem, and this was the church that he pastored. So the church of Jerusalem was living according to the flesh. There was infighting and jealousy and covetousness and an overall friendship with a wicked world. And in those first 12 verses of James, he got to the heart of their sin. Not just the symptoms or the byproducts, but where it was rooted. And it was in these two things. A lack of humility before God and a refusal to submit to God. But according to verse 10 of James 4, it is the humble who know God. And it is the humble who will be exalted. And yet, they live that way. The truth of how God deals with the humble and the proud should not have surprised the church of Jerusalem, and it shouldn't surprise you and me. God has always exalted the humble, and he has always humbled the proud. In the book of Daniel, King Belshazzar had seen a vision of a handwriting on a wall. It is from this story that we get the phrase, the writing was on the wall. Isn't that awesome? Did you ever know that? Meaning, it shouldn't have been a surprise. <laughs> and Daniel was summoned to interpret the king's vision and explain what this hand had written. And in explaining the meaning, Daniel said to the king in chapter 5 of Daniel, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was so hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, 
though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. The God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Friends, very likely you have heard me say this before, but God holds your breath, and he holds my breath in his hands, and he governs all our ways. And he allows every good and every bad that comes into our lives, and the truth of that matter demands a response. You can't just know that and say, oh well. Even more so, how we respond to those truths speaks volumes of our relationship with him. So as you hear those words, that the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, do you feel a sense of anxiousness or do you feel a sense of peace? Friends, knowing these things, in our pride, if that's where we land, we will either outright reject God's will or we will foolishly ignore it. Setting up kingdoms of our own in opposition to him at worst or forgetting his faithfulness and his goodness to us at best. Or, or we can respond to God's sovereignty in humility. Submitting to and being glad for God's rule. Trusting his goodness, remembering his faithfulness, and rest in the knowledge that because he is sovereign, his will will be done. So in today's passage, James warns the proud by using a practical example exemplified in thought, word, and deed. Verse 13 reads, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So in this passage, we are clearly warned against boasting, specifically regarding things that we deal with every day. When we'll go, where we'll go, what we will do, and what will come of it. How often are we talking about, thinking about, and doing those things If you have been interviewed in the past 20 years or so, you have likely been asked this question. Where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? Right? So while it's a question designed to get a sense of your goal orientation, I can't tell you how uncomfortable that question makes me. I know it's coming and I still get uncomfortable with it. My usual answer is I don't know. I don't know. And the reason that I'm uncomfortable with that question is because, in part, the presence of this verse in the Bible. It ought to cause us to pause about those things, right? 
And the second reason is that I have flat out been wrong about everything that is now good and true in my life. I've just been flat out wrong about it. How many of you are living the life today that you thought you'd be living five or ten years ago? Well, now, Dave, hold on. Is that really boasting? Isn't it just planning? Is that evil? I mean, who among us doesn't have plans and dreams and hopes and aspirations? Well, friends, the the good news is that James is not rebuking planning. He is rebuking those who live and make plans as though they control time and events. He is rebuking those who live and make plans as though they are the ones who control time and events. Not trusting in or being mindful of God and instead trusting their plans and their abilities and their resources as though we have any of those things apart from God having given them to us. And take note, in verse 13, nowhere is God mentioned. Nowhere. Jumping into verse 16, James continues, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So the boasting found in verse 13 is a byproduct of arrogance a twistedness of the heart, an exaltation of self. And James uses the word evil to connect this kind of attitude to that of Satan. Do you know that the word evil in the Bible is not used outside of that? It is that serious because pride and arrogance is the root of every sin. From the very first one, to the very last one. But it is in verse 14 that we find the two keys, I think, to this passage. First, we do not know the future. Second, we don't understand the nature of human life. So verse 14 starts with, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Friends, we don't know what one second from now will bring, much less tomorrow or any other day in the future. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, there are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows, and the other is that we do not. God knows, we do not. I don't know that we like that. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that God stands over time? That he does not operate as we do. We have a past that we cannot change, and we have a future that we do not know and cannot control. But with God, yesterday and today and tomorrow are places God is because he stands over and he sees it all. He is unbound by time and space, and he is unlimited in power. 
God is all-present, all-knowing, and all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. But you and I, we're a mist. We're a mist. Verse 14 continues, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So whether we are given 80 years or 90 years or 100 years, compared to eternity and our God who governs it, our life is like the steam from a cup of coffee. Condensation on a window, dew on the morning grass, an exhale on a winter day. Our lives are temporary and they are short-lived here today and gone today, as they say. Well, my goodness, Dave, this is depressing. I did not come here for this. But you're right, it is weighty. But it's weighty because the consequences are so huge. That's why we feel it. How we live our lives before God as eternal beings is at stake. And our good and right dependence upon God is on the line. And our independence is being challenged. So it's important that we take time to think about and consider the truth of who we are in light of who God is. Now, fortunately, James does not leave us with a rebuke, but with an encouragement. Verse 15 reads, instead, now here's our direction, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Friends, there is a way to live that is wise in the eyes of God. Go ahead. Please plan and dream and aspire, but do so with the will of God in mind. Plan and dream and aspire and hope, but do so with the will of God in mind. That's what James is getting at. Plan well, work hard, dream big, but in all of that, consider God and make Him primary. Ask God first, and then take the time to listen. And then obey. Psalm 37, verse 4, tells us that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our hearts. Do you know that? Our desires become godly desires when it is God whom we most desire. When God is first in our hearts, when his will is primary, our desires begin to look like his. Finally, at the end of this passage, the emphasis seems to change a little bit, doesn't it? It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And this verse may seem out of place until we remember that this verse is not just meant for this small section. There were no chapter or verse breaks. There were certainly no subheads in the original texts. It was meant to be read altogether. It was read altogether. And like all of Scripture, it is critical to look at verse 17 in light of the whole letter 
The book of James focuses on not just knowing the will of God, but doing the will of God. And to know his will and not do it is arrogant. It's arrogant and it's sinful. In chapter 1, verse 22, James writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. One commentator said it this way, the knowledge of the will of God does not only not at all profit, but it also makes one's sins far more grievous. It is sin to doubt whether a thing be right and yet do it. It is also sin to know that a thing is right and yet leave it undone. It is sin to doubt whether a thing be right and then do it. It is also a sin to know that a thing is right and yet to leave it undone. Sins of omission or the things that we don't do matter just as much as sins of commission, the things that we do. And as members of the body of Christ with Bibles in hand, indwelled by the Spirit of God and gifted with wise and godly brothers and sisters, the will of God, my friends, can be known. And having been given a new heart, new desires, and a new loving master to follow, the will of God can not only be known, but it ought to be done. Not just known, but done. Remember back in Mark 3, when Jesus' family showed up? In verse 33 and 34, this is what we hear Jesus say to the crowds. Who are my mother and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. To be part of the family of Jesus, my friends, is to desire and to do the will of God. And do you know what the will of God is at its most basic level? There's tons of scripture that points to these things. But at a high level, the will of God is to come to the knowledge of truth. To believe in the one that he has sent. To be saved. And to live according to his spirit. To come to the knowledge of truth to believe in the one that he has sent, to be saved, and to live according to his spirit. And when you have all of those things in place, all other questions of God's will, specific to your daily living, will take care of themselves. By his spirit, his will, and his desires will become yours when you have come to the knowledge of truth and believed in the one that he has sent and have been saved and live your life according to the Spirit. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we all drift towards believing that we're in control and that we're in command of our own destiny. We want what we want and we believe that it is all within our grasp. I chuckle 
when I hear commercials or I hear motivational speakers say that you can be whatever you want to be. You know who else chuckles? God. Our Western bend towards individualism demands and celebrates these notions. We may not say out loud that we think that we're in control, but what do our hearts say? What do our lives and our day-to-day decisions say? When the unexpected comes our way, job loss, a difficult diagnosis, money trouble, the death of a loved one, do we take it in stride trusting the will of God or are we stunned, paralyzed, crippled by the reality that things have not gone the way we thought they would? And when life decisions need to be made, are we making them with consideration of God and his will for us? Maybe it's in our career or in our family, what we want those things to be. Maybe it's where we live or in how we spend our time or our money. Disciples Church and my friends, Christ's Lordship is complete. He is the Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. There is no area of our lives that is exempt from his lordship. So ask yourself, what, or even better, who, controls me? Whose will do I follow and whose glory am I after? Friends, our hope for humility, obedience, and submission to God's will is not found within ourselves but it is found in Christ's love for us and his life in us. Our ability to be obedient and humble and submissive is rooted in the fact that Christ has loved us and he now indwells us. We are incapable of loving God, obeying God, and living for God on our own. We just are. Though God knows we try to white-knuckle our way through it, don't we? So we've been in the book of Mark for over a year now, listening to Jesus say what the Father told him to say, and watching Jesus do what the Father told him to do. No more and no less. I seek not my own will, said Jesus, but the will of him who sent me. What would Jesus do? He would say whatever the Father told him to say, and he would do whatever the Father told him to do. That's what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus would do. And over the last few months, we have watched Jesus march purposefully towards Jerusalem where he knew he would be betrayed, falsely accused, beaten, mocked, and killed. And on the night in which he was betrayed, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If there's any other way to do this, let's do it that way, if you are willing. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours 
be done. On the cross, Jesus was obedient where we were disobedient. And he was humble because we were arrogant and prideful. And as Christ died, we who love and follow him died too. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We died to self-reliance, to self-importance and self-glorification. The boastful, arrogant, disobedient, and rebellious you died and was buried with Christ. Leave him or her in that grave. And instead, in his resurrected life, live for him. And when you fail, not if, when you fail, look to the cross where your forgiveness was purchased with his blood and to the empty tomb where the power to live a new life in Christ was made possible. Friends, the whole of the Christian life finds God seeking to replace our self-sufficiency with grace-driven dependence upon him. He is looking to remove our self-sufficiency from us and replace it instead with a grace-driven dependence upon him. So that when we boast, we boast in him and in him alone. So we all have stories of our lives not going as expected. When my friend Lance died, you could ask my family and friends, I did not plan to get married. Many of you have probably dreamed about being married and having a family of your own for a while. That wasn't on my radar. I didn't anticipate being married, much less to marry his cousin, to have a son with her, to have a home with her. I also didn't think that I would find a place to belong in Christ's church. I'm an odd type. I didn't think I'd find a place to belong in this church, much less to preach on a Sunday. And like all of you, I had not anticipated what the year 2020 had brought. But here we are. And God is on the throne, and our breath is in his hands as he continues to pursue the lost and transform the found until he returns or calls us home. And that, my friends, is our hope and our assurance. Not that life would go the way we expect it. Not that it would be comfortable. But that our breath lies in his hands and he knows all our ways and he will continue to pursue the lost and transform the found until he returns or calls us home. That is certainly our hope and it is the hope and the assurance of the Mosier family and many others this week. So would you take some time today to consider where you are? What has God been saying to you today? Are you living for yourself or are you living for him? Are you unsettled 
afraid of the unknown and the unplanned, trying desperately to control things? Or are you resting in his grace, his goodness, and his sovereign plan? Examine your heart. Who or what does it desire above all else? Friends, God's will and his plans are perfect. And no one and nothing will keep them from being accomplished. So you might as well get on board. Nothing is going to thwart the plans of God. So get on board. Quit fighting. Quit kicking. And submit. Surrender. Because he loves you. And he's after your joy. He is good. And he has shown that he can be trusted. But he is also sovereign Lord. And he must be obeyed. So as we close today, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. I can't think of a better way to end. Now, I didn't put the... Our Father prayer, or the Lord's prayer, in the bulletin today, um, in part because the idea came late, but also in part because uh, I think most of you know it. If you don't know it, there's no shame in that. It's okay. Um, just listen to the words as they go by. But for the sake of a unified reading, can we agree to say, forgive us our trespasses and not forgive us our sins when we get there? There's nothing wrong with either. I just said, let's pick forgive us our trespasses. Because we don't really use trespasses when we talk otherwise. So we're going to use forgive us our trespasses instead of forgive us our sins. I think everything else will make sense. I will get us started, and then you guys can follow along. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.